Our dear Heavenly Father, Father, in your wisdom, you created 66 works in a book that tells the story of all that you intend to do and have done. And Father, we mark each one by that number because you chose through the wisdom of men, through your wisdom, through the actions of men to create a, a book with those divisions. And here we are standing at the beginning of one more of those 66 books. And Lord, I pray that you would give us the the same diligence and attention and heart for this book as we would for any other. Whether we study Genesis or Revelation, whether we study John, whether we study an epistle, whatever it is we turn our hearts to, Father, we want to see it in the same way, a continuous work of one author. And we ask, Lord, that what we learn tonight in this book would show the wisdom of that truth, that you wrote it from before the ages began so that you could explain things that we must know forever. May our attention tonight, Father, be rewarded with insight from the Holy Spirit. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Leonard Ravenhill is a Christian evangelist. He was an author, and he tells this really nice story about a group of American tourists who were visiting a really picturesque village. Imagine in your minds this postcard-like setting of a village in Great Britain, in the countryside of Great Britain. And the Americans, as they toured Great Britain, had been overwhelmed by the rich history of England and all the old, old places and the famous places they found here and there. And in particular, every time they went into one of these little villages, they would be met with some marker, some headstone that talked about famous people that were born in that little town. And everywhere they went, it seemed you could find one famous person after another. At one point in their tour, they were walking through a quaint countryside road. And as they're walking along the road, they happened upon an old man who was sitting on a bench on the side of the road. And the tourists went up to this man, who was obviously a local and, and was clearly not very impressed by yet another group of American tourists walking through his town. And one of the tourists walks up to this man, and in a rather patronizing tone, he asks the man, were there any great men born in your town? And the old man replied, nope, only babies. <laughs> and that story reminds us that all great men begin the same way, as babies, as the story went. And tonight we're beginning this new book, the book of Nehemiah, but in reality we're simply continuing in our study that we started already, the study of Israel's restoration. And Nehemiah is the part of that story that tells of God's final step of restoration, that is him reversing course from his first step of discipline back when Israel was taken captive. When they were rebellious against the Lord, he struck them first by removing the nation's corrupt leaders. And that first step of cutting off the head of the snake, so to speak, is now mirrored at the back end with the final step of restoration, which is that step of returning godly leadership to Israel. In Ezra, we studied the first two steps of that restoration process. The Lord brought first a remnant back to Jerusalem and restored in their hearts a true form of worship. And then he secondly delivered a teacher in the form of Ezra himself who would lead the people into maturity and into obedience to the word of God. And so now comes that third step of bringing the people together in service to the Lord under the authority of a leader. So heartfelt worship, study of the word, service to God. And those three steps are a concise description of every saint's walk in the faith. Heartfelt worship, study of God's word, service to God. And broadly speaking, in this book, we're going to find three themes emerging as we study through the the entirety of Nehemiah. And each of these themes is related in one fashion or another to this overall story of the restoration of Israel. The first theme, if you take notes, would be Nehemiah completing the return of the exiles from captivity. 
After Nehemiah enters the land, the total number of Jews who will have returned from Babylon will be around 100,000 Jews. And that came in three waves. Remember, they had the original wave coming with Zerubbabel, the second with Ezra. Now this will be the third. And that third contribution from Nehemiah rounds us up to about 100,000. But in the course of those three returning moments, you have yet to see any sense of national identity emerge from among the exiles in the land. They're really just living in their own little lives somewhere in the land. Any previous anticipation that they were united in waiting for a Messiah, that's all gone too. There's absolutely no remark whatsoever in this book, or for that matter in Esther or in Ezra, which are all contemporary works in terms of history. There's no mention in any of those works of any kind of messianic expectation. Now, that isn't to say God hasn't placed pictures of the Messiah in those books in one way or another. And on top of that, you had Zechariah and Malachi and Haggai who were prophesying in that same period of time, and they certainly bring up issues of the Messiah. But in general, the people had lost their anticipation for God to fulfill his promise concerning the Messiah. So the first theme you're going to see emerge in this book is the theme of reunification, nationalization in preparation for the Messiah's arrival. All of what happens in this book is designed to bring Israel to that last state, that final state, where they will persist largely until the Messiah's coming, which is, by the way, historically speaking, right around the corner from this book. That's the first theme. The second theme is the people being brought back under the custodialship of the law, of the law. In their time in captivity, they had lost their identity to a large extent because they had largely ceased to practice the law while in captivity. And as Paul tells us in Galatians, the law is a custodian given to guard Israel and to keep her, to keep her pure and to keep her as God intended her to be until, Paul says, until the Messiah came, until the seed who was promised. But without the freedom to worship, which was largely the case while they lived in Babylon, and without the temple, certainly, it was literally impossible for the nation of Israel to fulfill the purpose in the giving of the law because they couldn't practice it in its full form. So now you're going to see them returning to a place where they can do that without being trampled by Gentiles in, in the sense that they're not going to be at risk from Gentiles coming in and disturbing what they're doing and defiling the temple and the like. And then lastly, the third theme will be how Nehemiah is brought by the Lord into Jerusalem for the purpose of unifying the people under a skilled leader. In other words, it's about leadership and about the effect of godly leadership in building up people. That's the third theme, and as you might already be thinking, that's the one you're most familiar with. That's the one that most people think of when they think of the book of Nehemiah. It's not a coincidence that Nehemiah is often approached as a study in leadership principles because of that last theme. More than a few Christian and even business books out there use Nehemiah as an example of good leadership principles. Teachers will often focus on Nehemiah's organizational methods, on his people skills, on his oratory skills, on his negotiation skills, on his crisis de-escalation skills. All of those things are reflected in various books that do commentary on the book of Nehemiah. And the proof of his leadership acumen, they would tell you, is found in the result that he accomplishes, and specifically in his rebuilding of the city walls, which is the primary task that Nehemiah took upon himself. After lying in ruin for decades, the city walls are rebuilt in a matter of mere weeks. And given the magnitude of what he went there to do, that's an astonishing result by any measure. So that's where most focus on his work, his result, and his leadership effort that got that result. And certainly there are many good principles of leadership on display in this book. There's no doubt about that. 
And we can also agree that his accomplishments were pretty impressive. But I don't believe that those things are the reason, or at least not the main reason, why this book is included in the canon. The main purpose of the book of Nehemiah is to show how the Lord raises godly leaders to build up God's people. God doesn't care about brick walls, does he? No, he cares about the people who are protected by those brick walls. And this is a story of how God raises up godly leadership to build up people. Let's begin in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Shislev in the 20th year, while I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. They said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. The book of Nehemiah is a continuation of the book of Ezra. Like we said when we studied Ezra, this was originally a single work in the Hebrew canon. In fact, it still is today. Though many chapters are written in the first person in Nehemiah as they were in Ezra, it's still likely that Ezra wrote both books. Although as he wrote Nehemiah, he wrote it from Nehemiah's perspective. The events of Nehemiah span a total of 15 years if you go from chapter 1 all the way to the end. But the vast majority of the events in this book occur in less than one year. So there's only one little section in the book that gives us the other 14 years. Chronologically speaking, it is the final book of the Old Testament. Historically speaking, the next events recorded in the Bible after those of Nehemiah are the ones we find in the book of Matthew. And that's only a few hundred years after this moment, which is why I said earlier that this is God setting up his people under the law, the custodian, once more so that they would be prepared and ready for their Messiah's coming, which was right around the corner. The final prophet of the Old Testament, Malachi, prophesied during the time of Nehemiah. He is Nehemiah's contemporary. Chapter 1 of Nehemiah picks up 12 years after the end of the book of Ezra. Nehemiah is still living in Persia with the rest of the exiles who have not yet chosen to return to Israel. The king that rules at this point is Artaxerxes, the son of Xerxes, the king who married Esther. That is, Xerxes is the king who married Esther. This is his son now ruling, Artaxerxes. And in late autumn of 445 B.C., Nehemiah, living in the capital of the Persian Empire, hears this disturbing news. One of his brothers, Hanani, and there's a reference later in chapter 7 that would tell us this is likely a true brother, not just a brother in the sense of Israel, but an actual blood brother. This man has traveled down to Jerusalem and has come back. Likely, we think, he would have gone down with Ezra, and after a period of time has traveled back perhaps to see his brother in Susa. And when he comes back, of course, naturally, Nehemiah is curious. He's curious for any news about what's gone on with the exiles, because from those living in Persia, the best they probably know is that a bunch have left, and they've started work on the temple, and they've started work on rebuilding the city. But very little news has probably traveled back. More than likely, if you go down there, you don't think much of coming back. And if you're stuck in Persia, what do you assume? You're probably assuming the best. You're probably imagining a city returning to the previous splendor that it enjoyed under Solomon. You're probably imagining a temple that your forefathers talked about with a gleam in their eye. You're probably imagining a shining city on a hill, so to speak. You're, you're back to assuming those things. And so when Nehemiah asks for a news and he gets the news that he gets, it's terribly disappointing. Hanani reports that the people in the city are in great distress 
and are a reproach to the surrounding people. In other words, Jerusalem is the ghetto of their area. It's despised by surrounding people. Without a wall, it's probably a favorite target of thieves. It's raided by those who might come in to take advantage of whomever and however they could. There's no glory to a city like this. There's no strength to a city like this. Whatever barriers the people have erected, they're incapable of ultimately solving the problem. In fact, we might even imagine that the temple itself was at risk regularly, for it had valuable items in it, and there was probably very little to stop people from at least trying to take it. So all of this is a terrible crushing blow to Nehemiah. His response is weeping and mourning, but his reaction goes well beyond someone's normal degree of mourning at the sound of bad news. I mean, if you have a hometown that you particularly are fond of and someone tells you that it's in ruins, I'm sure you're going to be upset at it for a while. But how upset would you be about that issue if you had no personal stake in it? Your family didn't die. Your friends aren't dying. It's just the news that the town is in bad shape. His mourning goes on for an extended period of time. In fact, for months, as we'll find out. And it gives way to a period of fasting and praying. Now, we remember from the Ezra study that that combination is an effort to hear clearly from the Lord without the interference of the flesh concerning some petition. Next, we're going to discover what he was fasting and praying about. Verses 5 through 11. Nehemiah says, I said, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote part of the heavens, I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. They are your servants and your people whom you redeem by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. So Nehemiah appeals to the Lord. This is his prayer that's done in conjunction with fasting. As you know, he's mentioning, he mentions in verse 6 that he's doing this day and night. This is not a one-time event. This is not someone who immediately before he walks up to do something, ask God to bless his actions a fraction of a second before he goes about doing it, which I think is often our case. Instead, he's spending an extended period of time with this petition on his heart and putting it before the Lord. And he's earnest and he's heartfelt. And his approach is to request the Lord's favor concerning a certain matter that he has on his heart, the burdened heart that he has after the news of what's gone on in Jerusalem. And his prayer is directed toward this one request. The request is this, though. It's not that the Lord would grant him some particular outcome. What he asks is that the Lord would keep his promises. That's his prayer. Lord, keep your promise. He's referring to Leviticus 26, where God declared that when Israel repented, and there was a very specific form of repentance given in that chapter, one in which you're repenting not only of your own sin, but also of your father's sin, and, and so on that if they were to do that, he would restore them. Now, what Nehemiah does not know is that that promise can't be fulfilled until every single last member of the nation of Israel participates in that repentance. We won't see that until the end of tribulation. But 
for the most part, he's still working in concert with what it says about God, that God would do something in response to something from those who he calls his people. And so Nehemiah is acting on behalf of those people, making the claim of repentance on their behalf, hoping that God would keep his promise. Now, who shouldn't expect that a prayer like that would be well received by God? God, do what you said you were going to do. Wouldn't God always keep his promise? Right? So wouldn't this be a no-brainer? I mean, he's going to get it. Well, in eternal terms, of course he's going to. God is going to keep his promise. But in this case, Nehemiah is appealing to God for two very specific outcomes that are not necessarily assured. First, he's asking that the Lord, he's asking the Lord that this moment, his moment, his time, would be the moment when the Lord would choose to act in accordance with that promise. So the first question is, is now the time? God made promises, and he still controls the timing of their fulfillment. Many Jews, for example, prayed for the chance to see the Messiah in the flesh, but the Lord chose to grant that privilege only to a man like Simeon in Luke chapter 2. So it's not enough that we say, God, keep your promise. It's also a condition of whether or not we are at the right moment in God's economy, and that's Nehemiah's first concern. Make now the moment you would choose to do this. So he's praying for the opportunity to see the fulfillment of a promise that he knows God has made toward Israel, a promise to bless them in the land. What he knows is there's been a regathering of sorts to this point, which is consistent with what God, or seems to be consistent with what God was saying in Leviticus 26. And then he goes to the point of reminding God, when you said that, you said not only would a regathering happen, but it would be associated then, or that there would be a scattering, rather, but then that it would be followed by a regathering. And between those two would be repentance. Surely now is the time, Lord, for this to be happening. To Nehemiah's ears, that blessing had not yet come. He had seen the scattering, certainly, and he had seen the regathering. But what he had not seen was the blessing that God said would accompany the regathering. He's asking for that to be now. Secondly, he's praying for the Lord to accomplish this act through him. Now, here again, that's not something promised to anyone necessarily. The Lord has promised to bring about these certain events in the life of Israel. But the question remains, who will the Lord select to bring about these events? Nehemiah was praying for the chance to be that man who would accomplish these things. Nehemiah knew he was going to bless Israel someday, and I think that's an integral aspect of the prayer you can't overlook. There's no doubt in Nehemiah's mind as he prays this that God would, in fact, keep his promise. That's not implied. What's implied is, is it now and is it me? Let it be now, let it be me. And he's praying confidently on the assurance that it would happen someday. Throughout all of Israel's history, for example, many young women prayed for the blessing to be the woman privileged to give birth to the Messiah. But only Mary was chosen for that. Similarly, Nehemiah is asking to be chosen for the purpose of being the instrument of blessing to Israel now in this time of regathering. You might, want, you might even wonder why Nehemiah is praying so desperately for this opportunity in the first place. What's in it for him? After all, why not just leave like the rest of Israel has done in the t two times earlier? Why not just get on his horse and go down there and start it himself? In other words, why does, he wait, why does he need God's permission to jump in and lend a hand to the building of this wall? If he wanted to serve God so much in this particular way, what's holding him back? Well, in verse 11, you find out. In verse 11, we discover that he's praying so earnestly for the Lord to hear his plea because at some point, it's going to require that the Lord persuade a certain man if he is to be allowed to do the thing that is on his heart because he's employed in a very unique role. 
I find it interesting that you don't hear about who he is until verse 11, but as you see it build, you realize now why it's where it is and not at the beginning. It's the explanation for the prayer. Nehemiah is the cupbearer for the king of Persia. Now that role is an interesting one. Simply put, Nehemiah serves the food to the king or oversees that role, of course, but it's much more important than it sounds if that's all you know. The cupbearer is like the chief's the king's chief bodyguard. He had the responsibility of ensuring the safety of the food that went to the king, of the entire chain of food supply. He was like the head of secret service for the king. He was required, the cupbearer was required to sample everything the king would eat or drink before the king ate or drank it. And since he knew he would eat and drink everything before the king ate and drank it, he had, a, he had self-interest Great motivation to make sure that everything that came into the palace was not was free from the taint that enemies might, you know, try to introduce into the food chain, poison and the like. So he commanded a great deal of respect and authority. He commanded a great deal of of of, um, of servants and men. He had control over how they worked, and he made sure that they did their job. And because of where he sat in his role, he controlled the food chain. He was considered the king's most trusted advisor. The king never put someone in this role they didn't have absolute trust in, for obvious reasons. All of that is to say, Nehemiah serves in a role where you just can't up and leave any time you want. He has zero vacation days. So he's, he's stuck, but at the same time now, he's burdened. He has inquired about the welfare of the Jewish people, and done so long after, I suspect, many, else, many others in, in Israel have long forgotten about the exiles or ceased caring about what happened after they left. He doesn't have that problem. He's still concerned. He asks. And then when he hears the news, he mourns it. He loses sleep over it. Day and night he's praying, we're told. That's a godly burden. If you want to know the definition of a godly burden, here's an example of one. A godly person cannot escape it. Nehemiah also recognized that obedience to God's word demanded action in the face of a burden. Anyone can feel a burden, but who will act on that burden? In verse 11, Nehemiah begins to contemplate that solution. He begins to wonder if perhaps he will be the one God uses for that plan. But then he runs up against his institutional barrier. How is he going to be the guy if he's, meanwhile, the cupbearer to the king? Immediately as we open in the book of Nehemiah, we're confronted with a basic principle of how God brings godly leaders to guide his people, wherever they are, wherever they may be, however he chooses to support them. He does not cause leaders to audition for the part. He doesn't entice them with promises of personal fame or fortune. He doesn't lay out a career path in which you have a series of of constituencies, and each of them is simply seen as another rung on a ladder toward some kind of personal success story at the end. If those are the things that God would use to motivate a man like Nehemiah, he never would have left the king's side because he's already serving in the highest possible position that any Jew in his day could hope to hold. How do you go up from here? You don't. The only thing he could do is go down from this position. And you can't entice a man into leadership from where this man sat with money, with riches, with power, with authority, with a career change that makes sense. The job of leading the Jews in Jerusalem under the current circumstances is about as low as you could imagine in his day, as thankless, as difficult. So riches, fame, 
accolades are not the motivation for a job like this, for the man or woman who would be a godly leader among God's people. Those things, if they motivate them, immediately undermine them as a credible leader. God doesn't seek hearts motivated by those things. What God wants, self-evidently, as we see even now and earlier, early in the book, but it will certainly become increasingly clear as we go forward, he wants a man or a woman who would move into a position of leadership and restore uh, the needs of his people on the basis of a burden. On a burden, an unshakable, unmistakable calling to serve God's people. The only way he could get out from under this burden, the only way it could be satisfied is if God opens a door for him to leave and go down and serve in this way. That's what we want to look for in our own leaders, men and women who have a burden to serve a need that's self-evident within the body and is matched with an open door from the Lord indicating you are that one. And so God brings that opportunity to Nehemiah. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. And it came about in the month Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, why is your face sad? Though you are not sick, this is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. So the second chapter begins, we're told now, at the month of Nisan. Now that's roughly March-April time frame on our calendars. Now remember the earlier scene was set in late autumn. That's significant because that means that between chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Nehemiah, roughly four or five months have passed. For about 120 days, give or take, Nehemiah did this. He got up, he got dressed, he went to work, standing next to the very man who, with a word out of his mouth, could send him to Jerusalem on any of those days. But he said nothing. And he went home. And he got up, and he did it again. And he went home. And that whole time we're told he's praying, day and night, day and night. For 120 days he went to work and was in the presence of the one who could relieve his burden, and yet he took no initiative concerning that opportunity. He spent every one of those days in the company of that man silent on this issue. He must have had a lot of time of thinking about how he could raise the topic, about how he could work it into a conversation. Gee, I wonder what's going on in Jerusalem this time of year. You seen that wall lately? It's a wreck. Right? His desire to press this issue, and we know it's a burden because it's been evident already in the scripture, his desire to get that issue out and to get the response he want, wanted must have eaten at him the whole time, right? It's one thing to have a burden. It's another thing to have this, this opportunity just in front of you that you know would relieve that burden or at least satisfy your concerns, and yet he never took it. He seems to have done nothing for four or five long months. Why was he waiting? What was he doing during all this time? Well, Remember verse 4? He's praying. What's he praying for? You know, there is a thinking that's out in the church today. I've, I've encountered it myself that says, well, there's a time for thinking and there's a time for doing. Now, I'm sure I can come up with some scenarios in which that's probably sound advice. But the only scenarios I come to are the ones in which God's already answered the prayer. Then you need to get up and do what he's told you, yeah. But until that answer's come, you wait. He waits. What do you think was running through his mind at about the second or third month? of praying 
and praying and praying. Do you think he was growing a little impatient with God somewhere in there? Have you ever had that same moment, that same tendency in your walk? Have you ever done your Christian duty to pray on whatever it is you're waiting to hear about? And then you've been praying for some time and eventually you just decide either God's not going to answer you or you need to just get up and do something instead of waiting. And so you get busy. Right? When God is ready for us to act, I am fully convinced that God is capable and willing to make his will known to each of us in due time. When God wants you to know it's time to act, and when he's ready to show you, you're not going to miss it. And he won't hesitate to show you. You may not like the answer. You might choose to disobey him, but you're not going to miss it. So often, the real test of prayer is the waiting for the answer. And you can't assume that God's silence is equal to an answer. For obvious reasons, Nehemiah is often held out as a model of a praying man. And I agree, he is. He's a man who sought God's will before he took action. But don't overlook the real lesson in his life as a praying man. Nehemiah was going to wait until God opened the door for what he asked for. His real virtue in prayer is the patience to do nothing apart from an answer from God. I mean, if you have the confidence and faith in God to even offer up the prayer in the first place, then why would you lack the confidence to wait for the answer? If you have no confidence in the wait, don't bother offering the prayer. If God had not opened this door for four months, or I would argue four years, I think he still would have done the very same thing. Wait, get up, do the job, go home and pray. All the while, that burden would have been there. But then, as we see, God opens the door. And look how he opens it, which is, I think, such an interesting part of the story. In verse 1, Nehemiah says, I had not been sad in the king's presence. That's such an important detail to the story at this point, because part of the cupbearer's official duties, according to Persian historic documents, is that no one, not not just the cupbearer, mind you, but no one could ever express sadness in the presence of the king. Wouldn't you like to have that as a rule in your play, in your house or wherever you are? No one ever sat around me. I mean, what, a, what an interesting rule that would be. Nothing but happiness around me. Under Persian law, anyone who, could, who would dare show themselves unhappy or un, you know, displeased in the presence of the king could be executed and often were. Persians were known to be especially strict in the enforcement of their laws. And so Nehemiah had to be careful to keep up the expectations that come with his duties. And you notice in verse 1, he says, I had not been sad. But then in verse 2, the king looks at Nehemiah and says, how come you're sad? We have to assume that the king did not come to know of Nehemiah's sad disposition through observation. Because I don't think Nehemiah's words in the first verse are that he didn't think he looked sad before the king or that he had tried not to look sad before the king. He doesn't mean that he was trying and he failed. He means he didn't do it. That there was no observable characteristic of sadness in his demeanor. He means exactly what he said. Which means that if the king came away believing he's sad, the only answer is the king had a supernatural insight that God himself gave the king. Now, I'm not saying the king knew that it came supernaturally, but in his mind popped the thought, you know, Nehemiah looks kind of sad today. And in Nehemiah's head, he's like, I haven't done a single thing to make you think that. What does that tell Nehemiah? It reveals to Nehemiah that God has just made a move. That's the only explanation. That's the reason he states what he states. I didn't show sadness, but God opened the door through this conversation. 
it led initially to Nehemiah having great fear because he's not clear, and I'm sure, sure all of us in the same situation would have exactly the same reaction. In that split-second beginning, you're not quite clear what comes next. And knowing what the law required, he was in great jeopardy, or so he might have feared. But quickly it moves from there, and Nehemiah begins to appreciate that God just opened this door that he's been asking for for four months. And this is the day, for whatever reason, that God has selected that now the king would know of Nehemiah's burden. Even though Nehemiah did nothing different, God made the first move. And Nehemiah's patience has now been rewarded. And when God moves to bring leadership to the people who need it, in whatever form or fashion, he moves like this, in my opinion. I don't mean to say that this is a prescription that never varies. I mean in the general terms of what he does in the lives of people. He moves to raise up men and women to fill needs that predate their interest. Men don't create needs. Needs exist God raises men up to fill them. When God's ready to provide that leader, he will begin by preparing a leader who will first possess a burden and then a prayerful heart to accept it when the time comes. There's a reason why in Scripture you see David waiting to take the throne. There's a reason why you see in Scripture Moses rising up 40 years before he's needed. There's a point of preparation that predates the moment the job opens up. This person, whoever he may be, that's coming because of God's providence, he probably won't have a burden for what the people want, but he'll carry a burden for what God knows they need. He will have a burden for the people, he'll have a burden for God's word, he'll have a burden for God's glory, in the perfect sense, in the ideal setting. And that man or woman may, or often will be, the person who isn't looking for the opportunity. At least not at first. But when they sense that burden, when they first realize God is calling them to something, they're going to often turn to that first step of prayer for reassurance that the burden they think they're feeling is the burden they're really feeling. And then they'll wait to see what God does with that. Ultimately, that burden will give way in God's timing to some open door and their ability to take action. A leader in God's economy is someone who answers a call, not someone who comes calling with all the answers. A godly leader knows that if God has brought the burden and the call, then God can be trusted to bring the means to answer that call in the right timing. There's no need to rush it. Nehemiah has been waiting four months. Moses waited 40 years. David waited 10. Equally important, God will usually raise a leader who doesn't fit the classic mold. Here you see God raising up a cupbearer to become a wall builder and a leader over a nation. Nehemiah did not go to wall-building school. More than that, he has no background, as far as we can tell, in building whatsoever. In other words, in the eyes of men, he is wholly unqualified for this role. And yet, God says he's the man for the job. To be fair, Nehemiah is someone who has already developed some leadership expertise, if nothing else, in the role of cupbearer. So we're not saying that this man is incompetent. It's not that God has done nothing to prepare him. It may just look like that to the world as far as how they uh, measure confidence. What we can say is, though God does not raise up incompetent, man, incompetent men, he will often raise up unqualified men because those men are the perfect representatives to bring God glory. Men like Moses, men like David, men like Peter. Who's the ideal religious leader of a new world order of Christ's followers? Tax collectors and fishermen. 
So the king's question catches Nehemiah off guard. We know he asked it because the Lord directed his attention to the burden. And at some point, Nehemiah must have sensed that as well, because he answers in a very brave, courageous way, very forthright way, expecting that if God has opened this door, he can walk through it in courage, knowing it's going to lead somewhere good. Verse 3, I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? Then the king said to me, what would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I might rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will your journey be and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me and I gave him a definite time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the temple, for the wall of the city and for the houses to which I will go. And the king granted them to him or to me because the good hand of my God was on me. So as we see, he speaks boldly. And I think it's important to note he speaks truthfully in response to the king's questions. There's real risk in what he did. And it's, it's evident in some of the things we hear. The fact that he stopped to pray briefly before he answered the king's question. The fact that he admitted in the first statement, I should be, I am sad, essentially. He says, why would I not be sad? He initially basically agrees to the premise that he is sad. That's confessing a guilt to a crime that's punishable by death. That is to remind us that a step into leadership will carry risk, or at least the appearance of such. I think of it maybe as a test. I wonder if God doesn't do that sometimes, if not every time. It doesn't put us in a position where the door is open, but we can't see what's on the other side, and the step has a sense of risk to it so that he knows our heart's in it. Nehemiah says his sadness is because his people were suffering in Jerusalem. Even in the face of potential life-threatening situations like this, he doesn't lie. He says, with integrity, which I think is another integral characteristic of godly leaders, he says, this is why I feel what I feel. This is a man who looked for God to answer his prayer, even after four months. And as you see here, he hasn't stopped asking God and looking to God to guide him through the process. This is another little nugget as we pass through his discourse here. Don't, don't forget that while you may pray to get something started, that isn't the end of the prayer side of the process. A lot of times we think we see where God's going. We say, got it from here. Thanks, God. All right, let's go. And it doesn't work that way. So when he's asked this question, Nehemiah recognizes this is God opening the door. He steps up. He answers the king. And he says, clearly, I have a burden for something. When you're looking for God to do the impossible and then the impossible happens, you won't be afraid to go with it. Even when it seems like it's the worst possible alternative. And when the king hears Nehemiah's request, I love the way the king responds. There's not a lot of second guessing on the part of the king. No expectation that Nehemiah would explain his sadness in the presence of the king and all of that. He just says, all right, you can go, but when are you coming back? That's an important detail. When will you return? His reply would have stunned Nehemiah just at least in the sense that Nehemiah has now gotten the answer he wants, right? To go somewhere. But in the fact that he says you're not going to stay there, we see an indication that God's purpose in Nehemiah's going is not to create a new monarchy. 
A moment, and this is an interesting thing when you consider it from Nehemiah's point of view. A moment earlier, and I mean a moment, I mean 30 seconds earlier, he hadn't a clue that his life was about to change radically. And then, in the next moment, his life is completely different. God is sending Nehemiah to meet the needs of a city and of a people. And the king's question of when you're coming back tells Nehemiah, I'm not going for reasons other than a temporary need to fulfill God's purpose. I'm going to be, in fact, Nehemiah will end up being called the governor of Judah in an official role of the Persian government. He'll be there for one or two terms as governor, and he'll eventually come back to serve out the rest of his life under the king, as he was required to do. God is going to reserve the place of king for this point forward to his son. He's not looking for any more earthly kings. Even in this, there's a little biblical principle of leadership, one at work here, one that carries over, I think, into the church today. God's idea of leadership usually isn't man's idea of the same. People tend to prefer to have leaders with impressive titles and all kinds of power and authority around them. We tend to feel better when our leaders look big and important. Israelites, for example, preferred Saul. And for that very reason, we're told in 1 Samuel 8, verses 4 through 7, All the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, Behold, you've grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now, appoint a king to us to judge us like all the nations. But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them. Until that moment, God had provided leadership through judges like Samuel, who would enforce God's law. But he allowed a monarchy to come into position, to come into place as a response to their sinful request. They, in a sense, they got what they wanted, not what they needed. Throughout history, men have had this same tendency to dismiss and overlook the true leaders that God brings them to guide their walk with him and choose in place of that men that the world would say are the better choice. And, of course, the classic mistake is the one of what you see happening here, where Saul is picked rather than remaining with the leaders God had appointed. We're so busy looking for somebody mighty and impressive that we actually forget what the Bible teaches on this matter of leadership. It is God who leads and God who guides all of us. He only borrows a few of us for a time to help him get the job done. And he's capable of working through a small child as easily as he is through a mighty preacher or a king. We need to be careful not to reject God, as the Israelites did, because we demand leaders of our own making. And I think that's something that's scary when you consider it. God equates their willingness to ask for more powerful earthly leadership with them rejecting him. Leadership for the church is no different today than it was in the time of Judges. Our king is already on the throne. He's already the ruler. He already has it in hand, the Lord Christ. He's looking, though, for men and women like Nehemiah to be servant leaders underneath him. And only for a time. And only for a purpose. And never to replace him on the throne. Luke 22 has an interesting moment in which a dispute arose among the disciples. Verse 24, And there arose a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. Those who have authority over them are called benefactors, but it is not this way with you, but the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table, 
but I among you as the one who serves? So when we gather as a body, we should expect that God's going to raise men into leadership positions, usually from within that same body, and we should expect to submit to their authority for the sake of good order and effective ministry, and to do so honors the Lord. But we should expect those leaders, first and foremost, to be servants. Nehemiah's interest in going into Jerusalem was not to lead people. His interest was to go and make a problem better, to fix a wall, to serve the needs of Jerusalem. Nehemiah demonstrated a desire to assume a responsibility because first and foremost he had a heart for the needs of the people, not because someone threw a resume in front of him and said, hey, would you like this job? Check this out. You can have your name on the sign out front. So the Lord has found the right man for this job, and now it's time for this man to depart. Nehemiah gives the king a return date, and we'll learn later that that date is 12 years. He's going to spend 12 years in Jerusalem before he returns. The first letter that he asks for from the king is one that would allow him to move through the, the nation, through the kingdom, basically unmolested as he tries to walk, work his way down to Judah. And then he asks for another letter that's going to allow him to gain access to the king's forest. These are brave requests, and yet he was guided in the spirit to do that. King grants all of these re- requests, and it would seem very quickly. And so as with Ezra before, uh, there are some political happenings of the day that probably go to explain some of the king's motivation for why he was so quick to agree to some of these requests. There's a man named uh, Aniros who led a revolt in Lower Egypt in the late 460s, and he was aided and abetted by Persia's old enemy, Athens. While at the same time, another guy, and I love this guy's name, his name is Mega Bygox. Bygox? It's Mega B-Y-X-O-S. Bicox? Bisox? Bisos? Mega mega Bisos? I like that. Mega Bisos. Sounds like somebody who lifts a lot. (laughs) So at the same time, there was a man named Mega Bisos who lived in Syria, which is north of Judah, and he was leading a revolt at the same time. So you have revolts in north and south, north of and south of Judah against Persian rule. And so having a strong ally leading Judah was probably a shrewd political move on Artaxerxes' part, hoping to keep Israel's neighbors in check, or at least keep Israel in check. So that gives cause for him to say, yes, perhaps Nehemiah departs. Now that takes us to the latter part of chapter 2, verses 9 through 16. Then I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about it, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. And I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. I did not tell anyone what God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem, and there was no animal with me except the animal on which I was riding. So I went out at night by the valley of the gate in the direction of the dragon's well and on the ref- onto the refuse gate, inspecting the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and its gates, which were consumed by fire. Then I passed on to the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was no place for my mount to pass. So I went up at night by the ravine and inspected the wall. Then I entered the valley gate again and returned. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done, nor had I as yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the rest who did the work. Next time we meet, we're going to come back through and I'll have some handouts for you, maps that give you a lay of the, of the land as it's described here, and we'll get a better sense of what he's doing as he goes through this inspection. We're going to leave that for next time. 
For now, I want to try to get into the mind of what Nehemiah is thinking as he goes into this job. He's accompanied, we're told, by military escorts, and they make their way down from Persia. Uh, this is not just a military escort. In fact, that's a surprise in itself. No one asked for that, but apparently got, uh, the king decided he needed it. But it's more than just that. It's more than just a source of protection. It's also to provide Nehemiah with this impressive entrance into Jerusalem. It establishes credibility for Nehemiah. It establishes he has the king's authority. Nehemiah never asked for it, but it seems the Lord wanted him to have it. Clearly, the Lord wants to provide his chosen leader with some measure of endorsement for those he is about to see under this man's charge. And God does that at times, too. There's another parallel here. He'll appoint men and women to hold positions, and those positions do, at times, come with a certain trappings. They, they, they have certain significance, not for the purpose of building up an ego uh, or elevating the importance of that individual in some kind of unhelpful way, but rather to establish their credibility and authority among the people. In the first century church, the apostles had extraordinary powers. Those powers weren't intended to make them rock stars. They were intended to make sure that people knew that these men spoke with authority had the, the weight of the Spirit on them so that God's people would see that God is, in fact, moving in this person's life on their behalf. That doesn't require that we be able to raise men from the dead or heal them, etc. Our ways can be more subtle but equally impressive in the sense that we see God at work. Much could be made of the way Nehemiah arrives and the way he approaches his task here, about how he stayed in the city three days before he surveyed the wall. That would seem to suggest he wants to get to know the situation on the ground before he rushes into action. Sort of prudent, wouldn't you agree, for any new leader to get a sense of what's happening in the surroundings before he decides to charge in. We notice he starts out at night to do his surveying. He says he didn't want to attract any attention. He didn't want anyone to know he was out there if he could avoid it. He didn't want to alert Israel's enemies to the change that was coming. We've already seen a couple of names mentioned among those who would oppose him. And we might imagine he doesn't want to alarm the people either. I mean, can you imagine after he's a, a, a rode into town the way he did? Maybe some of the Jews are worried that this guy doesn't come for their good, but for their evil. Maybe to tear down the walls. Maybe to destroy them yet again. The last time an army rode into that town, bad things happened. Maybe he's being sensitive to their concerns. And then when he does go out, we're told he goes out by himself, limiting his circle of trust, for example. He doesn't open up to too many too soon. All of these things are shrewd moves. And there could be a lot of theories, leadership theories, principles, and so on, for why you do these kinds of things and how they contribute to the success of a leader and on and on and on and on. But I'm not going to spend any time on exploring those themes if they're even there. We're going to look beyond those details for the sake of something that's far more important to the text. Nehemiah goes about his business in this way because he is acutely aware of his purpose and his mission. In other words, he's aware of his burden. He's not running for office. He's not trying to impress people. He's not doing this for himself. He's there serving God. He's got a mission. He knows what he needs to do. He's not interested in winning too many people over for it, although there is a, an edge, a side of diplomacy for this position, certainly. But his first concern is not whether he's accepted in the role. If God has gone to all the work that he has to bring him to this point, then self-evidently God can also work to ensure he's received among the people. It isn't as though the prayer got him this far and now it's all about his leadership acumen that gets him the rest of the way. That's where we get humanistic in this story and we lose the angle of what God is doing. Nothing Nehemiah does here is calculated to build an image. He isn't concerned with appearances, even minimizing the unnecessary gossip or worry. He isn't trying to build allegiances. 
He isn't trying to undermine his challengers. In other words, he's not overly worried about the politics of his situation because he's confident the Lord will clear his path. His only worry, it would seem, is being a diligent workman in the task that God gave him. How many pastors, small group leaders, you name it, have women's ministry leaders have come to some new position and spent the vast majority of their energy trying to find their way into the politic of whatever the organization is that they've joined. And that is not to say that we have no concern for others' feelings or thoughts, but it is to say that if we truly came as a response to a burden, then we don't have to concern ourselves with how God is going to work that out. Focus on the task and the burden and let God work the difference. Leaders in modern ministry are often taught the exact opposite of this principle. Ironically, people point to Nehemiah in order to arrive at that opposite perspective. The story of Nehemiah being ironically taught as a good example of a new pastor coming in and exhibiting a good sense of how to get along and, and good politics, how to build the right kind of relationships, that, that storyline coming out of this book is so ironic because it's apparent that Nehemiah's true focus has nothing to do with that. It's on the work, surveying, establishing what has to get done, assessing how much work's ahead of him, making a clear determination on how to begin in terms of the work. We see this clearly when we look at the way he approaches the people after he's done with the investigation. Look in verses 17 and 18. Then he said to them, to the people that is now, he says, you see the bad situation we are in, that Jerusalem is desolate and its gates burned by fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so she will no longer be a reproach. I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me and also about the king's words which he had spoken to me. And then they said, well, let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. So at some point subsequent to that initial survey, he goes back into the city and he faces the people. So he has clearly come to the point where he's ready to talk to the crowd of the people that are there. And he presents them with his call and his argument to rebuild the city. Think about what is often said about the nature of leadership as it's revealed in Nehemiah. If you know the book or if you've heard this anywhere, I guess it depends on your experience. But I've often heard this, that we're, we make up this whole storyline about Nehemiah was so... Um, so expert, so sophisticated in building relationships so that he could win over the crowd so that he could get the job done with their help. There's, no, there's none of that here. He shows up, he runs around on a horse one night, next day he shows up and he says, let's go build a wall. And everyone says, okay. He said, and the way he does it is so straightforward. He just makes an appeal to them. He says, you see the facts, you see the situation. What do you say? We fix it. And he appeals to a shared interest. And this is, I think, part of ministry as well. He, shared, they have, he has a shared interest in the problem, and they have a shared interest in the solution. But didn't these people already know that? I mean, do you think they might have noticed the desolation already after living in the city? You think they might have noticed and thought to themselves, yeah, we ought to do something about that? But they didn't. You know, perhaps they live by a motto. It's, a famous, it's an old motto I love. Tomorrow is the excuse of the lazy and the refuge of the incompetent. Tomorrow is the excuse of the lazy and the refuge of the incompetent. Maybe that's what guided their thinking. Whatever the reason for their past inaction, here's a guy who rides into town a couple of days earlier, three days earlier, telling them what they already know, and they all stand up and go, yeah, let's go do that. What explains that difference? God. The only thing that explains that is God has been favorable to him in this plan. Here you see a, a real counter to the thought that says good leadership is all about learning how to get people to think like you and work with you. Well, in human terms, certainly. But in, in the sense of how God works, 
I like Margaret Thatcher once said something. I'm going to mangle the quote because I can't get it right. But Margaret Thatcher once said, leadership is not building consensus. It's getting people to do what they don't want to do. It's not about building consensus. It's about taking people somewhere they don't want to go. I think that may have been what she said. God has been working behind the scenes here all this while to make this possible. And Nehemiah's testimony is to that very effect. Look what God did in response to my prayer. Look what the king said in response to God's work. Look that I've shown up and look that I'm here now to help you. And if God has been working to bring me through all of these other details, then surely he's going to see us through this work. That's in, that's a sen- in a sense what he has said to these people. And their response is itself a work of God. Nehemiah knew the key to his plan and to his success was not to turn God's work into his work. Nehemiah had received a calling. He had received an appointment to do the work that God had called him to do, that of serving his people in this city. And he was never going to be able to do it alone. There was never any hope for that. He would need the people to agree. He would need their support. And he would need protection from God's enemies. But where in the world might Nehemiah have expected to get any of that if it were simply based on an appeal from his qualifications or from his experience? Imagine that. If he had shown up and he said, look, I'm a cupbearer. And I'm going to build you a wall. And I've come down here to do it for you. Join me in this fight. You know, there's nothing in that that speaks to God. And he certainly couldn't come in and say, I've got this genius idea on how we rebuild brick walls. Well, we kind of know how to do that, Nehemiah. We've done that a lot. Or I've got a huge bank account that can fund the project. Or I've, you know, I've gone to the right seminary. Or I've got the right backing. Or I've, I've, you know, your church is big, but I've been in some other big churches. I mean, all this humanistic comparison that lets us defend who we are rather than who God is. Forgetting that he picked David because David was the least likely to succeed. No, Nehemiah appeals on the basis that God was here with him, God had appointed this work, and God was prepared to finish it. And he establishes that the call was from God, and so God's people now were being asked to answer that. They were being asked to respond to God, not to Nehemiah. Friends, that's all we should expect from a godly leader. A servant to the body of Christ coming to serve the needs of the congregation and they serve us best by appealing to our own responsibility to respond to the call of God in joining in that service. We aren't there to do it for them and we aren't trusting in their abilities to make it successful. They aren't sent to do the work for us there to lead us in a higher calling, and that is to answer God's call. We should expect a godly leader to demand we use our gifts, that we participate in the work of the church, that we serve in God's purposes, but you cannot expect opportunistic, glory-seeking men or women who are obsessed with achieving something big and important for their own namesake to take the place of a godly leader. Those men or women will run a church into the ground in one major project after another, trying to build an edifice to their own ego. Few, if any, arise from God's calling or direction under those terms. We we need to look past people like that and look for the godly leaders God has pointed around us. Because even as those kinds of people may rise up, and they always will, that never stopped God from raising up true leaders around us in some other context, and usually in the least likely one we can imagine. Nehemiah is that least likely leader called with a burden and present now to do the work of the Lord. We'll come back next week and see what comes from that. Let's go to prayer and uh, finish with our goodies. Dear Father, I thank you, Lord, for the, for the insights of a leader in Nehemiah, for the reminder that any of us, Father, may be the one you might call and burden, that in prayer we find the assurance that that call is for us and that you have given us opportunity to answer. And 
And then as we serve one to another and others for us, I pray, Lord, that we'd always have a heart to serve the needs of people and not our own needs. Protect us, Father, from men and women whose only desires are themselves. Most of all, protect us, Father, from becoming one of those men or women. And let us all, Lord, seek to serve you in whatever way you call us, through whomever you call us, so that we might all benefit from the blessing that comes in joining you in that work. And, Lord, I pray you bring us back next week so we may continue in this study as you have ordained it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.